What's going on, everybody? This is Matt from The Tangent. Today's episode is actually a live talk that Father Sam Kachuba gave at Prasadi on Tap in North Haven, Connecticut. It was given on October 16th at J. Rue's Restaurant. I hope you enjoy this week's episode of The Tangent. Thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate the invitation to come and talk with you guys tonight, uh, and I appreciate you being part of a, a live recording of, of the tangent. Uh, this will air sometime. I don't know when, but it'll it'll go up on on our podcast and probably in edited form on Veritas Catholic Radio, thirteen fifty AM or one hundred three point nine FM. If you're if you're wondering, um, before we get started, though, let's let's pray. Um, that's why we're here. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, and be in this place. Open our hearts and our minds. Help us to enter deeply into communion with you so that together we may walk closer to the Lord and we may be a source of renewal and hope in the life of the church. We place ourselves under the care and intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the title of this talk tonight is Three Things You Can Do for the Good of the Church. Before we get into what those three things are, I want to propose for you the the image of the church as mother. We talk about our mother, the church. The church is this this grand institution through the world, but the church is very much spiritually our, our mother. And when you have an understanding of the church as mother, I want you to think of your own mother for a moment then too. All right. What do you do for your mother? What do you want for your mother? How do you feel when people talk about your mother? Or make jokes about your mother. When we think about our mother, I can make jokes about my mother, but you can't. I shouldn't be temperamental with my mother, but I am because I'm not a perfect person, right? So think of the church as mother. And if we have this image, this idea of the church as mother, then what can we do for our mother? What can we do to help our mother to be healthy, to continue on now as, as your adults, your parents are getting older now, right? You start to see your parents a little bit, maybe in their, in their weakness, you start to realize that mom and dad aren't fully invincible like we might have once thought they were. So as we get older and we start recognizing these things, we start to see then, all right, mom's going to need my help. So I want you to think of it in that way, because if we look at the church, we look at the state of the church today. Our mother, the church, while still very strong in so many ways, while, as the Second Vatican Council reminds us, the church is indefatigably holy, though made up of us sinners. So though her children are a mess, that's you and me, the church remains holy, thank God. And yet the church, the church is very much suffering today. It doesn't take much for us to look around and see that in the Catholic landscape, there's a great deal of suffering in the life of the church. There are a lot of things that are going wrong, or at least that aren't going well. So what do we do to help the church? And actually, this is, I think, an important piece, because as much as we might see that there's, there's problems and challenges in the life of the church, there are so many reasons to hope. That there's a group of young adults getting together to do something like this, to talk about the faith, to form community, to grow together, it's a great sign of hope. So let this be a, a little sign of that hope. But we can look and we can see our mother sick, our mother suffering, our mother struggling against the, the things that are being thrown at her in this world and the things that are coming out from, from within. The illness, the sickness, the injuries, they're not just inflicted from the outside, but often self-inflicted from, from within. So what can we do for the church? Well, the first thing is something that has been done for 2,000 years. It's something that the church has always turned to in times of crisis, in times of difficulty. It's something that 
the saints have all done. So the good news is we don't have to figure it out ourselves. The first thing I want to propose that you can do for the good of the church is prayer and sacraments. Pray. That was the gospel today at Mass, wasn't it? Jesus teaching his apostles about the necessity to pray always without growing weary. Pray always without growing weary. Continue coming to the Lord, petitioning, asking. Continue praising the Lord. Continue offering to God your very selves and your lives to pray, and to pray in particular for the church. So we, we know how to pray for ourselves, for the things that we want, for the things that we need. We know how to pray for our friends when they're going through something and to, to try to help them through whatever that, that crisis might be. But, but how often do we think to pray for the church in that sort of broad scope? We don't often think, I should pray for the church. Very much right now, the church needs our prayers for the good of the church, for the sake of this, this people of God. We need to pray for the church. And one of the most important ways that we pray for the church is through our participation in the sacramental life. Jesus gave us the sacraments for a reason. And those sacraments are to be for us the source of our communion with him. When we receive the sacraments, we're entering into more deeply the life of grace. Do you know that's why the church exists? The church exists not only so that we can take advantage of that life of grace, but also so that the life of grace can be poured out on the entire world. So through her children, the church is God's instrument to bring his grace to the world. Well, how does that grace come to the world if you and me aren't praying, if we're not celebrating the sacraments? So most importantly, that's, that's going to mean prayer daily. And I would highly recommend, especially the prayer of the rosary, to turn to our Blessed Mother to ask for her, for her intercession. So daily rosary, if you can. Prayer daily. The Mass. To go to Mass faithfully. To make it a point to go at least every Sunday. And if you can go more often, go more often. Because it's, it's in our Eucharistic Lord that we find our, our truest rest, our truest peace. Go to confession too. I'm a sinner and you are sinners. Right? Okay, good. Yeah, so as long as we're in agreement that we're all sinners, we're in good company. I said this in my homily this morning, so Michelle already heard this part, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again now. When I was in high school, I read these words. Did our world give us the disbelief we live in? Or did our disbelief give us the world we live in? These are from John Paul II. I don't know where he wrote it or where he said it. It's kind of a rhetorical question, so it seems to me that it's not something that he wrote in one of his encyclicals. It's probably a homily or something. I've never really found the citation. I should. I haven't done that homework. I'm sorry. I apologize. But anyway, this isn't an academic paper, so you don't have to worry about if my citations are okay or not. Did our world give us the disbelief we live in, or did our disbelief give us the world we live in? Really, basically, what this comes down to is that, that when we believe, when we're strong in our faith, and when we pray, that's how the gospel ended at Mass too. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's a good question. When he comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find us faithful and watching? Will he find us praying? Will he find us believing? Will he find us sharing our faith with, with the world and, and bringing his presence and his light to those we meet? This is what Jesus challenges us to do. When our faith is strong, when our prayer is strong, the world notices and the world is transformed. But what happens if we stop praying? What happens if we stop caring? You're going to see a decline you're going to see a decline that has a spiritual correlation, right? Once upon a time, confession was a thing that most Catholics did at least monthly. How many of you were raised to go to confession at least monthly? Raise your hand. Two, three. I went to Catholic school growing up. You know how often we went to confession at Catholic school? Twice a year, Advent and Lent. Get ready for Christmas so Santa brings you presents and get ready for Good Friday because Jesus died for your sins. 
twice a year. You know how long it took me to learn what a mortal sin was? I was in high school, like a sophomore in high school, and I, I found out what a mortal sin was. I'm looking at this examination of conscience going, oh no, I'm going straight to hell. <laughs> I cannot tell you how different my life would have been had the value of confession been expressed to me earlier. Had I come to understand more deeply what, what God's mercy really looked like. So take advantage of the sacraments. Prayer and sacraments, it's the first thing I want you to do for the good of the church. But you notice that if it's for the good of the church, it's for you too. Praying daily, praying the rosary every day. What do all the saints tell us about prayer daily? It changes your soul. It changes your heart. What do all the saints tell us about the mass, about the Eucharist, about confession? It changes you. It makes you better. If we want the church to be better, it starts with us. So for the good of the church, pray daily. Go to mass, the sacraments. That's not all that challenging though, is it? It's not. It's pretty easy. It's kind of the baseline for what we're supposed to be doing if we're going to live the life of grace. And it doesn't necessarily require a whole lot of effort. But so that we don't sit back and think that things are too easy, the church has also always given us something else. And this is the second thing I want to suggest for you for the good of the church. This is in line with prayer and the sacraments. And I want to suggest to you fasting. Fasting as a more regular part of your discipline. So we fast during Lent. We know 40 days, we've got to give something up. We've got to figure out what we're going to do. And uh, so we come up with a thing. We, maybe you'd go a little extra mile and you do Exodus 90. Uh, you do one of those programs where you're, you're, going to, you're going to take on prayer and, and fasting and discipline yourself for, for a bit longer than just the 40 days of Lent. But I want to suggest that fasting is actually something that's, that's kind of built into our, our culture as Catholics, and it's something that we've lost. So how many of you have heard that uh, after Vatican II, we didn't have to abstain from meat on Fridays anymore? Raise your hand. If, if you were taught it's okay to have, have meat on Fridays uh, because Vatican II said you don't have to anymore. Okay, I'm going to tell you something about Vatican II. Vatican II never said that. In fact, canon law still says that you should abstain from meat on Fridays. But conveniently, I'm going to get real sarcastic here for a second. Conveniently, the bishops of the United States decided that's too hard in the mid-60s. They said, you know what? I'm not sure if people can really handle this. So let's let them substitute some other act of penance. How many of you have ever substituted some act of penance on a Friday because, oh, I'm going to have meat? Okay, but like before you found out and before you learned that. Okay, good. Thank you. At least one. Good. Here's the deal. Most of us forgot that there was also supposed to be this other act of penance, and we just started eating meat, and we're like, hey, hamburgers, this is great. I love it. Fasting, though. Fasting has always been part of Catholic culture. So the, the beauty of this is that, if you think, just go back in, in, in our history, right, to a time when, when we didn't have food mass-produced and full of preservatives, when we couldn't get food year-round, when food actually was seasonal, Think back to a time then, that, what that meant was that there was a certain way that we ate. And I, I mean, we, actually, anybody in this room, because none of us were alive then, right? I mean, human beings ate seasonally. There were certain things that you got at certain times of year. And when you didn't have those things, you went without them. But then add in the liturgical year and the idea of a liturgical calendar and the changing of seasons also being a spiritual reality, not just a... a, a an actual weather phenomenon. And so as the seasons change, so too our spiritual life changes. And so as we go through these different times in, in, in our, our calendar year, we also go through different times in our spiritual year. And so the liturgical calendar gives us the, the sense of, of what's happening. It gives us the sense of the mysteries that we're celebrating. And so in that, fasting and feasting are necessary components. Remember that Jesus is criticized in the gospel, isn't he? He's criticized because he and his disciples do not fast but the disciples of the Pharisees do. They say, why, why don't you fast? And Jesus says, well, as long as the bridegroom is here, we don't fast. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then, then they will fast. And so sure enough, fasting becomes a part of the church's life right from the very beginning. From the ascension on, we have fasting as a part of what we do. But fasting also has a, a very practical reason for it, right? Fasting is good for us. And I, I don't necessarily mean just not eating for a long period of time. 
I mean, even just abstaining from certain foods for, for a period of time. Fasting can be so good for us because we don't need all the stuff that we really like all the time, do we? I might really love Twinkies, but I don't need them daily. In fact, I, I, I mean, they're chemicals. I don't need them at all, right? It's not an actual food. It's a, it's a chemical conglomeration that has been nicely, neatly wrapped and tastes amazing. But I don't need it daily, do I? Fasting, then, I think, is one of the things that if we can recover a sense of, of how to fast and how to fast well and how to make that personal discipline a regular part of our lives, when we can discipline ourselves in one area of our life, teaches us that we can discipline ourselves in other areas too. So if I can discipline what I put on my plate, what I put in my mouth, if I can discipline myself in that way, then I can also learn the discipline required to live a moral life. I can also learn how to overcome some of those temptations that I might be more prone to because I know how to not eat certain things. You see, it's a simple, small thing, but if I can do that simple, small thing, I can do the next thing, the next big thing. And then once I can do that next bigger thing, I can start growing. I can keep doing more. Fasting is something that we do regularly, not just during the 40 days of Lent. It's 365 days in the year. And the church only asks from us 40 days in which fasting is a discipline. But I think for the good of the church, if we incorporated more time of fasting, there's a great book by Jay Richardson called Eat, Fast, Feast. So he has turned Eat, Pray, Love on its head, and he's gone with something different. It's a really fascinating book, but what he's trying to do in this book, and I'm not paid to endorse his book, but if he wants to like share royalties with me or anything, I'm, I'm fine with that. If, if he wants to send me free copies that I can give to people, no problem. I don't, I don't mind at all. But in Eat, Fast, Feast, what he's doing is, is presenting a Christian vision for fasting alongside some of the nutritional facts about it as well. So he's saying th there's a safe way to do this and a healthy way to do this without getting all caught up in, in the, the, the rules about what food you can and can't eat. There's a good way to do it that, that keeps you healthy. But that actually also makes fasting easier. See, the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. How many of you get halfway through Ash Wednesday and want to die, right? Because you've, you've gone the day without eating and like, I just got my ashes and it's almost lunchtime and, and I can't believe I still have to make it through to dinner. And honestly, let's, okay, can we also just, since we're talking about fasting and I've already criticized the bishops of the United States once, can we, can we just say that, that the idea that, that fasting that, that we have come up with, that fasting, a day of, of actual fasting counts as, as one main meal plus two small meals is not fasting at all. There's nothing difficult about that. It's like, have less sandwich but you can still eat the sandwich. Just like maybe don't eat the crust. Like, come on, that's not fasting. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world, but that's what we've decided fasting. Okay, I'm sorry. The fasting rules are obscene and ridiculous and we need to actually learn how to fast. But here's how we can actually get to that place. Because for right now I can yell and scream all I want about how stupid those rules are. But the only way those rules can ever transform is if we, for the good of the church, learn how to fast again. Learn what fasting really looks like, a fasting that is spiritually balanced and healthy and intentional. See, we get distracted real easily with the fasting, don't we? Ash Wednesday, just got to get through the day because it's a day of, it's a day of uh, fasting and abstinence. Good Friday, I've got to get, just get through because it's a day of fasting and abstinence. But if we become more intentional about fasting, we have a particular purpose, something for which we are offering our fasting, then the fast is easy. I can go without because I'm offering this for a reason. I have good reason to fast. I don't know if any of you are parents yet in this room, but think about a woman in her pregnancy. She immediately stops consuming alcohol. In fact, that's how one of my dear friends uh, told me she was pregnant. Was we went out for dinner uh, with her husband and uh, they had already ordered me a, a beer because they knew what kind of beer I liked. So we sat down to, to eat and I looked over and she did not have a glass of wine in front of her. And she always had a glass of wine when we had dinner together. And there she is with seltzer. And I looked at her and I looked at him and I said, why aren't you having wine? She looked at him and I said, oh, I know. And she said, you're not supposed to know until we tell you. I said, then tell me. She goes, I'm pregnant. Said, yes, this is great. I'm so excited. I got to baptize that one. 
which was fun. Then I got to baptize the next one. Then I got to be godfather to the next one. And then I was out of state the next time the, the, the last one was born, so I, I, didn't, I didn't get that one. I have no connection to that kid at all. <laughs> we can fast. We're all capable of it. We're all capable of doing this. We're all capable of doing without. But so easily we forget that we can do without stuff. All right. These two first things that we can do for the good of the church are very much in line with our spiritual lives. They're very much in keeping with the tradition of our church. They are very much a part of what the church has always done. And I wanted to bring those in because whenever we're looking at the church in crisis, we need to look at the church historically. We need to look at the church as how the church has handled crises in the past because there's nothing new under the sun, Right? Vanity of vanities, all things are vanity. There is nothing new under the sun. Thus says Koholeth. If there's nothing new under the sun, then guys, the crisis that the church is living through in this moment is no different than any other crisis she has faced. We just have more technology to talk about it. That's it. The crisis that the church is facing today is solved by holiness. Holiness. In every age, in the moments of deepest crisis, deepest conflict, God has raised up in his church saints. And those saints change the world. Those saints reform the church. Those saints lead the way. So when we pray, when we celebrate the sacraments, when we learn to discipline ourselves, God will use that. God will use your holiness and mine to transform the world. But there's a third thing I promised. A third thing that I want you to do for the good of the church. And this is because in every moment of great crisis, the church has also thought deeply. The greatest ideas in theology, the greatest developments in Catholic philosophy did not just drop down out of the sky, but they came in the moments when there were great crises of faith. What is Jesus. Who is Jesus? What is the Eucharist? What is the church? In times of greatest crisis, the minds of the church have been activated to think deeply, to meditate on these different mysteries of God. And thinking deeply and theologically, they have articulated for us the truths of our faith. Sometimes with a lot of debate, Remember Nicholas punching Arius, the Council of Nicaea. If it isn't true, it should be. I love the idea of punching heretics. I don't know why, but it just appeals to me. I haven't done it yet, just so we're clear, all right? I have not punched any heretics, you know, or at least I don't know that they're heretics if I've punched them, not as a priest, certainly, okay? Just let's be real clear here. But to engage the intellect is an incredibly important part of our Catholic faith and our Catholic life. If we're going to live as good Catholics, if we're going to do something good for the sake of the church, we need to know our faith. We need to know what we believe and we need to be ready to talk about it. So very specifically then, that's kind of the broad picture intellectually, but there's a very specific way I want to propose for you to, to know things and to study. And it might sound a little bit off topic from everything else that I've said. But I want to propose to you that one of the most important things you can do for the good of the church right now in this particular historical moment is read the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Here's why. How many of you were raised with the idea that Vatican II uh, put mass in English and turned the altar around and uh, said that the church needs to modernize? Okay. How many of you have read a document of the Second Vatican Council? Okay, so you, you see that, that almost all of us were, were, were taught that Vatican II modernized everything, turned the altar around, changed Mass into English. But very few in this room have had the opportunity to read a document of the Second Vatican Council. This weekend, I got to participate in the Vatican II conference at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield. I got to do a presentation with a parishioner of mine who's a professor of education there. He's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my entire life. It was great. 
was a lot of fun. But what shocked me was that as we finished our presentation, uh, the, the people in the room uh, said, thank you for, for reading those, those documents and helping us to, to understand them. And I said, uh, have, had you ever read them? And they said, no. The number of people in this, in this room at a conference about Vatican II had never read the documents of the council. Now, here they are. Those are documents of, of Vatican II. This is also some of the post-conciliar documents, and you don't need to read those. They're, they're dumb. Um, <laughs> no, it's not that they're dumb. It's that they're not as important as reading the documents themselves. Read the documents, all right? Because the documents of Vatican II, right now, there's a huge question that's being raised in the church about what the council said, what the council wanted. And very honestly, right now in the life of the church, there are some bad ideas being promoted and they're claiming the council as inspiration. There are some terrible ideas right now that are, are being promoted in the life of the church globally. Think of the synod in Germany, the synodal process. It's a disaster. It is going to lead to schism. If it isn't reined in, it will lead to schism a vast separation in the life of the church, a huge wound for our mother, the church. That's what's going to happen if it doesn't get reined in. But you know what they're claiming as their motivation and as their guiding light? Vatican II. It's amazing because Cardinal Walter Casper, who's been a, a great scholar of Vatican II, but has, if you're, if you're breaking it down into conservative and liberal camps, and I don't think that's a good way to, to talk about the church at all, so don't talk about my mother that way. Uh, but if you, if you have to, if you absolutely have no other categories that you can use, Cardinal Walter Casper has, has typically been seen on, the, uh, on the, the more liberal side of things. And he's recently come out and said that the, the synodal process in Germany is, is not being faithful to Vatican II. Their ecclesiology is flawed. Their, their approach is, is flawed. And so the, the Germans turned around and started accusing him of being an arch-conservative, which was hilarious because no one in the history of Walter Casper's life has ever accused that man of being an arch-conservative. But he does know what he's talking about. He does know what he's talking about. So when, when we talk about Vatican II, right, there's, there's four main constitutions. If you just want the four main constitutions, they're right here. I actually highly recommend this little edition. This is from Ignatius Press. Again, I don't get paid to endorse Ignatius Press, but I love everything that Ignatius Press publishes. So if they want to send me free books um, or just like, yeah, just loop me in on that, I'm, I'm fine with it. Okay. So you can tell them that I was, I was advertising their book. In, in this book, the, the four main constitutions of the Second Vatican Council are included, along with some great introductions and some great summaries that, that help you to understand a little bit better. But these, these main constitutions, the four constitutions of the Second Vatican Council, touch on, on the liturgy, the, the church, the church in the modern world, and the word of God. Now, I am a, a firm believer that Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church from the Second Vatican Council, is the center and heart of the entire council. Sacrosanctum Concilium, the, doc, the, doc, the, the document on the, the liturgy, uh, even though it came first, I think is actually of secondary importance. It's important. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of faith, so I'm, I'm there. But it's, it's of lesser importance than, than what Lumen Gentium says. Because Lumen Gentium gives us the, the church's self-understanding. So here's how our mother, the church, understands herself. Sacrosanctum Concilium talks about how we're going to worship. De Verbum, the document on the Word of God on the Scriptures, tells us how the church reads Scripture, calls on us to, to devote ourselves to studying the Scriptures. Gaudium et Spes, the, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, speaks about the church's pastoral mission to the world. It's fascinating the way that the church does it, because everything that Gaudium et Spes says has to be rooted in, in Lumen Gentium. So Gaudium et Spes is talking about the pastoral mission. This is what we're going to do for the world as a church. Well, if we don't understand what we are and who we are as church, what church means, then we can't possibly do any of the stuff that Gaudium et Spes wants us to do. right? And if we don't understand who we are and what we are as a church, we can't possibly worship the way that the church wants us to worship because we don't understand ourselves. And if we don't understand ourselves, then our worship is going to get messed up. And guess what has happened to our worship as Catholics? It has gotten messed up. And you know why it's gotten messed up? Because we don't understand what the church is and what the church is supposed to be and what our mother the church is. That's why Lumen Gentium is number one. I'm a huge fan of Lumen Gentium. I don't know if you can tell. I love Lumen Gentium. It's, it's, for me, that's the most important document. But here's the deal. If nobody reads the documents, 
If nobody's ever read them and they've just been told, well, the spirit of adding to tells us to just do whatever we want. We can make things up as we go along. Or if we go with the, the idea that the spirit of adding to is that we have to just modernize. We've got to keep up with the world. And so we should change all of our moral teachings so that we look more like every other group or every other place. Guys, we're doomed to fail. Nothing good comes from that. And here's the thing. There are people promoting that, but they're not even looking around at what's happened in the world. Look at all the old mainline Protestant churches here in the United States. They are experiencing a demographic winter. They are in steep decline, just as we are experiencing a, a decline. But theirs is even more. But what have they done? In the main, they've gone along with whatever the world says, whatever secular society offers. That's what they've gone along with. And there are voices in the church today saying we should be doing the same thing. It's a death sentence. No, it's not a death sentence. It's suicide. If we understand, though, what the council says, if we understand what the council is actually about, then we're going to recover the sense of at the heart of Lumen Gentium, at the heart of the dogmatic constitution of the church, at the heart of the entire Second Vatican Council, is this one vital chapter called the universal call to holiness. So what are the first two things I told you you can do for the good of the church? They both help you to become saints. Prayer and sacraments. Fasting. These are the things that help you to become saints. So the universal call to holiness that we are all called to be saints, you and me together, and that's another really important piece that we, that we read throughout the, the documents of the council, is that it's not about two separate classes of people, uh, laity over here and clergy over here, and then the clergy, I just get to tell you guys what to do. That'd be fun, but it's not okay, right? It's not a good way to do things. It's a bad model. It's a bad business model. It's a bad, it's a bad family model. In fact, that's another theme that's all the way through uh, the council. Just read the conciliar documents, and you're going to find the family mentioned everywhere. The family, the family, the family. Why? Because it all starts in the family. So that's a fourth thing you can do. Okay, we'll come to the fourth thing later. Start a family. Start a family and bring them to church. Make your family more important than your career. Make your family more important than anything else that you do. Your career supports your family, right? Make your family that, that center. Okay, that's the fourth thing. Well, I wasn't planning to talk about four things. So I, I, now I have to change the title of the talk and, and we don't have time. I can't time travel yet. Three things you can do for the good of the church. Read the documents of the Second Vatican Council because when we have the understanding of, of how the church sees herself, then we're also going to understand what our mission is because ultimately, this is what Lumen Gentium says at the very beginning, Christ is the light of the nations. And as we read through Lumen Gentium, we're going to see that the purpose of the church, the reason that the church exists, is to bring the light of Christ to every nation. The reason that we exist as Catholics is to bring the light of Christ to the nations. But we need to receive that light first. So in baptism, we received it. And in our sacramental life and in our prayer, that light is fostered and allowed to grow. And then having received that light, having cultivated the life of Christ that is in us, we're sent out on mission. So when we start looking at the church's mission to the world, the church's mission to the world is not just to, to be there and to pat the world on the back and say, way to go world, you're doing a great job. Because look at the world. I don't want to pat the world on the back and say you're doing a great job. It's a mess. I don't know if you know this. It's a mess. But the mission of the church in the world is to proclaim the light of Christ. To bring the light of Christ into that mess. To bring God's presence into that darkness. So for the good of the church, we have to understand what our mission is. But for the good of the church, too, we need to be ready to, to answer. So I'd add to this, it's not just about knowing what the Second Vatican Council says. But if you really want, well, if you want an easy, like, knock yourself out, put yourself to sleep, pick up Denzinger. Denzinger is a book of, of similar size to the Second Vatican Council, and Denzinger is all the other councils that the church has ever had. About the same length. Vatican II is very wordy. Most, most church documents are not quite so wordy. You know, they, they, they say a lot in very few words. It's the beauty of the Latin language. Actually, Latin says an awful lot without having to say too much. It's, it's, it's fascinating. But if you, if you read the documents of the church and the, the historical documents that the church has, has put out at different councils, you'll see, you'll see the teaching. What if you just dove into the Nicene Creed? Right? 
Well, you want to understand what, what the creed is and what, what the creed says. Pick up the catechism. And you read through the catechism and you start to realize this is what the, the fathers at Nicaea were talking about. Underlying everything that you read in the catechism. Underlying everything there is centuries and centuries of scholarship. Centuries and centuries of theologians helping us to understand more deeply what is contained in the gospel. So for the good of the church, get to know the church. For the good of the church, know what the church actually says. Because there's a lot of people who will lie to us about what the church is, what the church says, what the church believes. Unfortunately, those people who will lie to us about what the church is, what the church says, what the church believes, are both outside the church and within. So what do you do when someone comes to you with an idea that doesn't make any sense? <laughs> I like how you think. Okay, so we've got St. Nicholas over there in the corner ready to punch the heretics. <laughs> I love it. No, we're not going to punch people. Again, on the tangent and in this conversation, we're not going to advocate violence. But I'd like to suggest this. Our, our first instinct is what? It's to argue. It's to tell them why they're wrong. I want to suggest this, though. If you read the documents of the Second Vatican Council, if you read them, somebody comes with that idea, well, the church modernized everything. Spirit of Vatican II says we can do whatever we want. Show me. Vatican II said you're not allowed to use Latin anymore. Show me. Anybody want to take a stab at it? You want to find where in Vatican II it says no more Latin? Do you have a sense of where this is going? And why you might not want to take this book out of my hand right now? It's because it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. How would you know? Read Sacrosanctum Concilium. That's how you'd know. People will tell you, no, Vatican II changed all of that. Nope. Didn't. We have to be part of the intellectual response as well as the spiritual response for the healing of the church. If we want to see the church grow and heal, if we want to see our mother healthy again, then she needs us to know what we're talking about. We've gotten into the habit of doing most of our arguing online in very small spaces and in echo chambers. We've gotten away from text. We've got, I mean, actual texts, not phone texts, right? Okay, just, just want to make sure. Now I have to make that distinction. I never would have had to make that distinction before. Now I have to say it. We've gotten away from looking at the sources and from really thinking deeply about this stuff. But the whole history of the church has never been about shallow thought or half-finished ideas. The whole history of the church, the whole renewal of the church, the whole health of the church has always rested on deeply thought-out ideas. It has always rested on a tradition that stands on the shoulders of the apostles. And so if we're in a time of crisis in the life of the, of the church, then one part of that answer, one part of the solution to that crisis is going to be our own knowledge. So I want to encourage you. It looks a lot more intimidating than it is. But these documents are actually really easy to read, really easy to understand. When we know them, when we understand them, it's going to send us back to the scriptures. It's going to send us back to reading the gospel. It's going to make us want to know the history of the church. It's going to inspire us to, to desire to know more about what the church says about any number of other things. It's going to help us to think through how we as Catholics today, in 2022, can respond to the needs of our mother, the church. Let's pray. Frequent the sacraments. Fast. And study. Thanks.
Uh, does anybody have any questions you want to throw at me? Anything you want to argue with me about? <laughs> Feel free. Father Anthony. Father Sam, thank you so much. That was outstanding. Sometimes I feel like at talks or events like this, if you don't ask a question, you know, you and I, priests in the room, we have to be the one to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being. Th thanks for being that guy. I appreciate no, in this it. Case, it's not that case at all. I was just so impressed and inspired by your talk. Thank you. I really have genuine questions for you. Yeah. You mentioned what's happening in Germany and how close we are to very dangerous schism. And on the other side of the church, we have people who say things like. The Holy Father is the Antichrist, mm -hmm. things of that nature. What would you say to well-meaning Catholics who don't know what to do with things happening on the left and the right of the church and just want the church to be whole? What would you say to the regular folks who don't yeah. know what to do with that? So to, to try to balance that out, what, yeah, right. How do, how do you talk to people who are on, on the extremes of the church? Um, either we want to just tear down all the walls and, and change everything about the church or... Um, yeah, everything that's happening in the church right now is, is evil and terrible. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I think one of the things to, to keep in mind is what's the real problem that's being raised? So if we're, if we're raising the, the problem of, of an issue of preference, can we acknowledge that we all have preferences? There are certain things that, that we prefer. You're all sitting here and you've all ordered food. Did you order food you don't like? No, you ordered food you like. You ordered stuff that, that you actually want to eat. That's normal. That's human. And that's okay. We are allowed to like things. We're allowed to have, have particular preferences. You know, I'm going to tell you that you should all pray the rosary, but I know that for some people, the rosary isn't their favorite devotion. I don't think that excuses you from it. Like, I also don't like going to confession, but it doesn't excuse me from going to confession. I need it, right? So there's some things that we, we've, we've got to receive, we've got to have, we've got to do. And there are other things that, you know what, if, it, if that's not your thing, that's okay. There's room in the life of the church for you. So we can sort of start with just taking a, a big tent approach and understanding that in the life of the church, there are lots of things that still leave room for each of us to have our own particular uh, preferences and, and our own particularities. But then there's this other part, which is, uh, I, I think that right now in the church, we, we also need to fight against ultramontanism again. So ultramontanism is a heresy that, that sprang up. Uh, basically suggesting that everything has to be referred back to the Pope, and, and the Pope is, is kind of number one. So Vatican I, the, the first Vatican Council, established the, the infallibility of the Pope. Um, so it was always something that was understood, that all questions of faith are referred back to Peter, or the successor of Peter. But it's at Vatican I that they actually define papal infallibility, that the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra on matters of faith and morals. Now, that was to kind of establish the, the authority of the Pope to, to teach things, but there's this other thing that then happens as a result, which is we start thinking that everything always has to go back to, to the Pope. Everything's always about the Pope. It's always about the Pope. It's always about the Pope. We do the same thing, incidentally, in the United States of America in election season, right? We start thinking everything's about what the federal government's going to do. Everything's about national elections. You know what? National elections are dumb. When is the last time the president of the United States actually made a real concrete difference in your life? He is irrelevant to you. And if you don't know that yet, I'm going to tell you who the president is, is irrelevant to your daily life. But you know, it's a lot more important who's on your city council, who's on your board of education, who's on your board of finance, who's your who's your tax assessor in town. That stuff matters. That's the stuff that's actually going to affect your life. Right. But we get caught up in all these big national level things that have nothing to do with us right here. We're in North Haven. I've never been here. I know nothing about this town. I have no idea like how to get home from here. I need to GPS to do anything. You know how, okay, first of all, I'm sidebar here. I'm sorry. I'm going to get to your question, Father Anthony. But like, do you know how, how, like, how weird it feels to not know where you are or where you're going, even though you're in your own state? Like I took a cross-country trip this summer. I drove to Montana with a, a priest buddy of mine, um, and it was, it was great. And we had no idea where we were going. We we're just going to kind of make it up as we go along. But we didn't care because we're just on the open road. American dream, baby, right? It was going to be great. But I'm in my own state, and I don't know where I am. That's a weird, weird feeling. Okay, anyway. We've become ultramontane in our practice as Catholics once again. Now, part of that is actually kind of John Paul II's fault. I love John Paul II. He's amazing. But because he traveled everywhere... Because he became the most photographed person on earth. Did you know that? 
at the time of his death, he was the most photographed person on earth. More than like the Queen of England, more than Princess Di, John Paul II had been photographed because he traveled the whole world. He made the papacy an event. When the Pope comes to town, you better pay attention. You got to go. You got to see it. Right? Well, so that drew us in. How many of you have a living memory of John Paul II? I, I realize now as I'm getting older that there's more and more people who don't have a living memory of John Paul II, and that, that terrifies me. I've got to be really honest. <laughs> he, he, he died in, in what, 05, 06? 06, yeah. So some of you actually wouldn't actually have a, oh my goodness. Some of you are too young to have a living memory of John Paul II. Oh my God, where am I? <laughs> with that global travel and with that influence, he drew in so many people. And he made the papacy something that we all paid attention to. But what can also happen as a result of that is we start to think everything always has to go back to the Pope. We need to be less ultramontane in things. What that can also mean is that we have a, a hesitancy about saying anything about the Pope. Right? We're afraid to say that, hey, maybe the Pope didn't make a great decision. Here's the deal. If we look back on the papacy of John Paul II, we're going to find some things that he was wrong about. Not in his teaching. His teachings were rock solid. But certain aspects of his governance of the church, John Paul missed some things. That doesn't take away from his sanctity, but he missed some stuff that was really important. So did Benedict, who I believe will also one day be a saint. I think he's the greatest theologian of the last century. I think he's the most important theologian. If you're going to study any theologian, study Joseph Ratzinger. But even in his own governance of the church, things didn't always go as well as, as we would hope. In the papacy of Francis, we have to have some courage to be honest to say that Francis has made some major missteps in his governance, right? And to say that, to, to acknowledge mistakes in governance is not the same as to reject papal authority or his teaching. And we have to, we have to insist on that distinction. So I heard a conference recently and, and the, the gentleman who was presenting was saying that there's an anti-Francis faction in the church that rejects his entire papacy. Unfortunately, as he said that he was lumping in anyone who has ever said, I don't think that makes any sense. Or anybody who has had, had a question or has raised a question, Holy Father, what did you mean about this? You know, like, I always get nervous when the Pope gets on a plane. Right? Because you know he's going to say something. You know some crazy thing's going to come out of his mouth. I love and respect our Holy Father. But stop giving interviews on planes. It's a terrible place to give an interview. And they never report it right. Understand the medium, buddy. The medium is not your friend right now. And I say that actually out of concern for him because he's actually said tr some tremendous things, some very important things. But none of that gets to us because the medium through which he's doing it distorts it. To say that doesn't make me anti-Francis. doesn't make me against the Pope. For the good of the church, sometimes we have to say things. Now, there's a very big difference between saying that I think this particular stylistic choice is the wrong one, or I think this way of phrasing it might need some work, or even I think you've made a mistake in governance, and saying I reject the teachings of the church. So think back to Pope Paul VI and Humanae Vitae. And in the years following Humanae Vitae, there was this attempt to say, we're, we're going to faithfully dissent from the authoritative magisterial teaching of the Pope. We're going to faithfully dissent and say, no, I don't think that that's necessary. I don't have to believe it. Compare that to, I'm not sure that Pope Francis's most recent motu proprio was the wisest and most prudent decision. His motu proprio was not about a dogmatic issue. It was not about a serious moral issue. It was not about something through which he was exercising the ordinary magisterium. He made a law. And sometimes laws aren't good laws. Versus, we're going to dissent from an authoritative magisterial teaching. Not a law. An authoritative magisterial teaching of the church confirmed by the office of Peter. Those are two very different kinds of dissent, right? So what we have to do is make the distinction. Maybe I'm being too Thomistic in that. I'm not a Dominican, so I don't think I have the right to be that Thomistic about things. But we have to make distinctions. There is a difference. 
There's a difference between saying, I'm not sure that's the right call, or even saying, I think there's reasons that you're wrong, and saying, I reject everything that you have taught. I reject you wholeheartedly and entirely. If, we're, if we've gotten to that place where we're rejecting the Pope, where we're rejecting the teaching authority of the church, we have already separated ourselves. But to honestly offer a critique and to do so in keeping with what the church teaches, that's another reason why it's so important to understand the documents of the council. When we understand the documents of the council, then we're able to actually look more deeply at what the church is saying. And so we can offer a critique that's actually rooted in what the church has said. So that's how I would, I would answer it. Like we've got these, we do have these polls, but it, we've got to make the distinction about what's really happening. Is there anything you as lay people can ha do to have influence on the formation of priests? Well, it's an outstanding question, and I'm glad you're bringing it up. Um, I'll take a stab at some, some suggestions for, for what you can do to influence the formation of priests. On the, on the, the, the bigger practical level, I don't know. Um, we, have, uh, we just had the, the new Ratio Fundamentalis for priestly formation come out. Um, so that's the, the program for priestly formation. And it kind of says what guys are supposed to be studying and how their formation is supposed to be done. So I think that will bring some renewal because there's some new things that they've put in there that hopefully will be, will be really helpful. Um, <clears throat> but if you're looking at, at what you can do, uh, one thing would be to, to become friends with seminarians and to talk to them about their formation. What are they learning? Um, talk to them about it and kind of engage them on that. Like, all right, well, if you're going to have to teach the faith, teach me something. Teach me something about the faith. Like someday you're going to have to explain this to people. So, so tell me what you're, what you're getting in your formation. What have you read? Um, it's easy, believe it or not, to go through seminary without reading too much. I don't know if any of you ever did that in college. You kind of like went through classes and you, you passed, but you didn't actually read any of the stuff you were supposed to read. No, all of your super honest students who, who always did all your homework, right? Of course you are. Of course. No, it's easy to go through without reading really important things. I'll tell you a story about a priest who I know, and this was years and years and years ago. So, you know, he's now a priest, I, I think, almost, almost 40, 45 years. Uh, but when he was first ordained, he was assigned to a parish, and he was, he was saying some things, and people in the parish said, Father, that's not correct. And he said they came to him and they challenged him on it. They did it in a very charitable way. They, they approached him and they said, we, we want to talk to you about something you said in your homily. And they brought to his attention some of the things that he had said that were inaccurate theologically. And he resisted it at first, but then they said, here. And they gave him a book to read. And he read it and it resonated with him. And then they sat down with him and they started talking about things. And they got him reading some stuff that he was a good theologian. He, he knew how to do theology. He's a good priest. He knew how to be a priest. But there were some things that he hadn't fully interiorized and some things that he hadn't fully grasped that it was really important that he study. And so reading some of these things that they were offering to him and, and reading some solid theologians and some solid spiritual reading, he started to understand that if he said it this way, well, then he was leading people astray. But if he said it this way, he was actually guiding them towards, towards the truth. And that became a pivotal moment for him in his entire priesthood. And it radically changed how he preached and how he did spiritual direction. Radically changed how he did all kinds of things. And it was because lay people weren't afraid to go and talk to him about it. Now, as far as seminary formation itself goes, um, well, how about this? Go get doctorates in theology and philosophy and go teach in the seminary. Because I promise you one thing, we don't have enough priests to spare to go and do the teaching all clergy in seminaries, right? We don't necessarily have the people who can, who can go and do that. Some of the finest professors that I had while I was in seminary were, were lay professors. I had some great priest professors too. I'm not saying anything against any of the professors that I had, but some of the very finest professors that I had were, were lay professors. Now, when I was doing my undergraduate work as a seminarian um, and I had the, the university campus to be on, um, that was hit or miss because you're dealing with a university that has no actual attachment to your seminary. And so you have no idea what's, what's coming your way. It can be great stuff. It can be a disaster. If you have some good, uh, some good professors at the seminary, at least, they can make up for what's lacking um, on campus. But if most of your stuff is being done on campus, you might, if the seminary doesn't have too much control. So that's another thing. If you've got a, a seminary that's attached to a university 
how much of the of the the seminarians curriculum is is actually controlled by and how much of the the faculty is chosen by the seminary faculty and how much is just at the whim of the university so that's not i mean we could do a whole thing about how to recover the idea of a catholic university and fix catholic universities we see we're only going to fix catholic universities if we fix catholic schools so like you don't have to get a doctorate in theology just go teach in a catholic school or sit on the board of a Catholic school and insist that the school be authentically Catholic, right? Challenge Catholic schools to hire Catholic teachers, even if it's not just to teach religion. Like, what would happen? What would happen if all the science teachers, all the math teachers were practicing Catholics in our Catholic high schools? If the gym teacher was a practicing Catholic, the English teacher, the French teacher, what would happen? How's, how's this for crazy? What would happen if we taught Latin again in, in our Catholic schools? You, you know that the only place they're teaching Latin now in, in school is, is public high school. That's our language. It's ours. Like, by right, it's ours. That's cultural appropriation. <laughs> if there's anything that could get the, the public schools to stop doing, we just need to say it's cultural appropriation. But, see, we stopped teaching it. But it's ours. Then we stopped saying that it's important to be Catholic in a Catholic school. And we wonder why our Catholic schools are closing. Same thing's happening in the seminaries. If we don't take seminary formation seriously, if we don't have a vested interest in it, and you as lay people have a vested interest, because guess what? Those are the guys who are going to be with you through the toughest moments of your life. When I was vocation director for the Diocese of Bridgeport, that was one of the questions that I would ask as I met with a guy. Would I want this guy anointing my mother in the hospital? And if the answer was no, then I tried as quickly as possible to send him on his way to discern something else. If this isn't a person who I could see in a moment of deep crisis with my own mother or my own father, if I don't want this person hearing my mother's confession, the guy who, who came after me as, as vocation director, um, I, I told him about that. And uh, two of his sisters and his parents are parishioners of mine now. So I feel like I'm, I'm okay. He, like, he doesn't mind that his family is deeply involved in the life of my parish. And I'm like, okay, that's really good. But it's so intimidating. You go out at Mass and you see like a, a, another priest's family there. And you're like, I gotta be good. I gotta be on. I gotta be okay. I don't want to mess this up. Like the, his nieces and nephews are all part of our, our youth ministry and everything. I'm just like, I just got to treat them so nicely. I want to make sure they have a good experience. I don't want to do anything because then he's going to be mad at me and he's a really good priest and I trust him. Anyway, so I don't know exactly like concrete things that you can do to, to influence seminary formation, but make friends with seminarians, challenge them to teach you, go get a doctorate in philosophy or theology and apply it to, to teach at a seminary, right? Like that's, if lay people won't do it, don't wait around for the church to do it. Don't wait around for priests to do it because we're lazy. Well, look, if, if your time in formation led you out of formation. There's a good chance that the Lord's not calling you to the priesthood, right? I don't want to, I don't want to make a definitive statement for you because I don't know your spiritual life. I don't, I don't know your history or anything else. But chances are, there's a reason that you're not in, in priestly formation. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan for what you're going to do. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have a mission for how, how you're going to contribute to the life of the church. There's a, a friend of mine from when I was in seminary as a layman, and he thought he was called to the priesthood and he kept going to, to vocation retreats. He kept visiting religious orders, kept talking to the diocesan vocation director and just couldn't seem to make any progress to actually take the, take the plunge. And finally, his current wife said to him, what if God wants you to marry me? And he went, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> and, and that's how they started dating. <laughs> but what he realized that he was feeling a, a, a pull towards was, was to, to teach the faith. And so he went and he's, he's now got a doctorate in, in scripture. He's a, a university professor. He felt this, this deep urge to teach the faith and to, to share it. And now as a professor, he's, he's killing it. He's doing a great thing for the good of the church. He wasn't called to the priesthood. You don't have to be a priest to do something great for the good of the church. But if God's calling to the priesthood, please do it. We need you desperately. <laughs> right? All right. Any other questions? Anything else I can tell you? Great. Unless Father Anthony wants to do one more. I do have one. Okay, go for it. Go for it. Thanks, Father. Yeah.
just for your witness, for your inspiring example, for your enthusiasm, for your, your thank you for reading and teaching to take the church seriously. You're just an inspiring priest to me. Thanks. Yes, Father. Um, I love how you presented the church's teachings on fasting, for example. You know, one big meal and two smaller meals. And all of us in this room can relate to that moment of indulgence of like, I'm going to maximize <laughs> parameters to suit my right. Wednesday as best I can, or whatever. What would you say, Father, to folks on the other end of the spectrum who are given towards scrupulosity, mm. self hatred, yeah. uh, rejection of the body, of their own body? What would you say to folks on that? Yeah. So one of the one of the most Catholic things that we can do is is work towards integration, right? So working to working towards an integration of, of our spiritual life that we we both have to fast and feast. We are both sinners, and we have the potential to be saints, right? God is just and merciful. So my bishop always says that the, the most Catholic word in the English language is and. So balancing these things and and remembering that it's important to have a, a to have a balance. Our fasting, if we're speaking just, just about fasting, right? Our fasting is, is never meant to be something that causes us physical or emotional harm. The moment you see it becoming something that's a cause of anxiety, the moment you see it becoming something that's, that's a, a cause of, of physical pain, the, that's the moment to, to stop. I recommend if you're, if you're going to do fasting to, to speak to a spiritual director about how you're going to fast and to make sure that you're, that you're doing it in a, in a way that's, that's really, truly healthy. Um, when given to that to that scrupulosity, uh, the the key is always just to to be reminded of of God's goodness and mercy, right? God's goodness and mercy and love for you, and that goodness and mercy and love for you overcomes whatever your weaknesses are, whatever your your sins are. So even if if you're thinking I've 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 done too much, I've I've really, yeah, there's there's just too many things, too many ways in in which I sin. Uh, be reminded of that reality of of God's goodness and His mercy. At the same time that we're reminded of God's goodness and mercy, uh, we need to understand that, that God knows us and he knows the truth. And sometimes we're not speaking the truth to ourselves. Sometimes the stuff that, that, we're, that we're thinking about ourselves or the, the things that we've, we've now decided to internalize are not actually true statements. And so sometimes we have, to, we have to name the lie for what it is and then we have to, to speak something true. So name the lie of, of I'm a terrible sinner. I've done this awful thing. Many times you, you haven't. Name the lie that, that, you're, that you're speaking to yourself and understand there's a truth and, and Jesus Christ gives you that corresponding truth. And in giving you that corresponding truth, he wants to, he wants to raise you up. He wants to, to really help you. Um, so it, it's about balance. It's about recognizing that it's both and, not either or. Uh, and, and that God's mercy overcomes whatever our, our weaknesses are. Sorry, what did I dislike recently about? Oh, sure. Um, so recent in, in recent things, if, is there something that I've disliked about, about what Francis has done? Sure. So, well, the, the recent modo proprio traditionis custodes um, about the, the traditional Latin mass, um, I think, is, is a poorly written law. Um, so it, it, it essentially restricts the, the usage of that mass tremendously. And I, I think it's, it's poorly written, and I, I think it, it's also responding to a problem that doesn't exist, and it's not, therefore created a problem. And so something that wasn't problematic, something that wasn't causing these, these deep rifts or, or pains in the life of the church, has now caused a deep pain and a deep rift in the life of the church. And sometimes you don't need to open wounds. Or sometimes you don't need to make an incision. And so it's sort of an unnecessary surgery that's not even cosmetic. So now we're just going to be left with a scar. It, I think I think there's a lot more hope for for making that bridge. You're right. Yes, I think there's there's far more hope for for making connections between the old right and the new right. There's far more hope for for helping people who uh, have that that preference for the old right, helping people who have the preference for the new right to understand each other better, um, to really go to what what Benedict was looking for, which is a mutual enrichment. Right. Um, so I, for me, that that's that's an, an issue of of uh, something that's happened recently where I go, I don't think he got it right. I don't think he made the right call. I don't reject his authority to do it. He's the Pope, and he has authority to do that. I just don't think it was a good exercise of that authority. But that's my opinion, and I don't reject him as Pope for saying that. Right? When Pope Benedict XVI uh, expanded permission to, to celebrate the old right, it was in, with the idea, yes, of, of continuity, 
That Vatican II does not represent a rupture in the church's history. It's, it's meant to represent a continuity um, rooted in our tradition, rooted in the past. Now, there can be some things as you read the documents of the council that you might find and say, that doesn't sound like continuity. That sounds more like rupture. And there are some moments in there where you go, I don't know if that rupture was, was the best thing. That, that's why the church continues to go and continues to, to think and continues to develop. Um, in fact, in the life of the church, if you look at, at our, our history, um, most, uh, most things relating to uh, a, a council take up to a century to actually implement. So we just marked the 60th anniversary of the opening of the council. Uh, by the time we get to the centenary of the, of the Second Vatican Council, um, there will still be questions, I bet. It, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Other questions? You said you didn't like Yankees. I do not like the Yankees. No, I'm a lifelong Mets fan. Yeah, lifelong Mets fan. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, it was. So a couple things happen, right? So the, the, the Mets lose in the wild card, and there's both a, a deep sense of sadness at the loss and a, a sense of like, I'm going to have to grieve this for a little while, and also a deep sense of relief because in, in the days following the, those losses, I had like. A schedule that was so full of stuff and going, I can't be watching baseball every night, screaming at the TV. When the Mets were in the World Series in 2015, I stayed up every night watching every single game that they were in, screaming at the TV every night. Like the poor priests who lived with me, two elderly guys at the time, and they were like, What's wrong with you? You were so normal when you got here, and all of a sudden you're just shouting. I'm like, It's it's the Mets. They drive me crazy. I love them so much, but they be a Mets fan, and it will teach you how to be a good Catholic. <laughs> Because you deal with suffering, you'll deal with seasons of, of loss, you deal with the spiritual desert, and you deal with those moments of intense joy and hope for the future, even when all signs of hope seem to have been removed. To be a Mets fan is to truly understand the Catholic faith. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs>